Hello. Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Um, it is the middle of July. And uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, time is so flying terrible. By. I don't even know what the context for my loss of time is because, like, I don't, at some level, I'm just like, well, who cares? It's just time is passing, you know, but <laughs> it does seem like time is passing quickly. It's so but. crazy. Well, you must be also, as a parent, you see your kid grow. Does that mess you up time wise? Yeah. No. The thing, you know, it's like basically every single truism and cliche of parenthood yeah. is true, you know, like they do grow up so fast. You know, which is something that people say. Aww. And at some point when they're very young, you're just like, no, they're not growing up fast at all. You know, yeah. this baby is still pooping in a diaper. But then once they get to a certain age, time does seem to speed up. Um, you know, at the beginning of the show, I, you know, I think that we wanted to give a tribute to John Bennett. This is a uh, somebody that Tammy and I both knew. Um, he was an editor at the New Yorker for a very long period of time. Um, and he passed away recently and, uh, you know, he passed away from pancreatic cancer. Um, you know, I think his legacy, uh, you know, will, from a work standpoint is pretty unquestioned. You know, this is the person who edited Pauline Kale, this person who edited Robert Caro, right? Alma Guillermo Preto, John McPhee, right? But, um, at least for me, and I think for you too, Tammy, right? Like his... And that for a lot of people who have been voicing a lot of their similar sentiments online, um, you know, like his his legacy is as somebody who was like a right um, a place that can feel at times intimidating. I think is the right is the best term to use. Um, and I think I don't think that anyone who works there. I don't want to get you in trouble, Tammy, since you you know you work there. But I don't think that anyone there would yeah, say. Yeah. It can't, it's not an intimidating place for people who first come in. Um, John was really like a person who reached out to a lot of people. You know, yeah. and he was a person that uh, was extremely kind to me um, personally. Uh, I was going through a lot of issues when I was there um, for the short period of time that I worked there. And if somebody, you know, the people say, oh, well, my office door is always open. You know, and you never really know if that's true or not. But with John, it was always true. His office was always open. He gave me a lot of great advice. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the thing that I remember the most is just him constantly telling me, like, all this stuff that you're worried about, it's not going to, it doesn't really matter. Like, you're worried about it because you're new and, you know, like, this is a new type of place for you and you're worried about your career. But you should just, you know, like, care about writing you should care about the words that are produced and um if you do that and you don't worry so much about the politics of these types of places you might mm. it might be that the politics of these types of places mean that you don't work here anymore right like that's a possibility <laughs> but that like they won't like your soul won't be stolen by these types of institutions right which is a thing mm. that can happen right yeah and he always said that within the context so of being somebody who had been working at these types of places a long time. Right. And so there is a way in which like you can do good work within the context of an institution and that you can sort of keep yourself as like a person. And that like, yeah. you know, that was something that I didn't know at the time, you know, cause I was so intimidated about working there. Um, mm -hmm. And that has been advice that I've really sort of held on 
for my entire career was very meaningful for me and i was very saddened to hear about his passing tammy like what, what, what were your experiences like with john yeah i overlapped with him for less than a year because he was retiring then right. but it was the same thing where he was so kind and welcoming we should say that john is a super unusual person in media because he grew up in extreme poverty in the east of texas you know he, i think he was in the mail room at the new yorker but before right. that he worked at like backpacker magazine yeah. or something like right. he was very right. just the least assuming just cool chill you know, I, I was almost intimidated by him because he was so cool and aloof and didn't take any of the crap seriously. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like the opposite. Um, he was really into labor politics. So we would talk about left stuff that was happening in the news. And yeah, I think he just, he also was always really kind to everyone. I mean, I was a fact checker there. He was kind to the assistants. He didn't care about rank and any of that stuff. So it made me feel incredibly welcome and warmed and, and also kind of gave me hope that there could be a sort of class politics or a different kind of person who could work in media. Right. I don't know if that's actually true because I don't know if John Bennett could exist right now. Do you think so? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think so, but, but you know, because I think at some point, you know, the, he, I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question, but I will say that like I had, um, you know, like that's, that's sort of the, timbre at least or the tone of a lot of these remembrances right which is yeah. uh this is a person who did not think much hierarchically right even though i'm sure he had his own ambitions right um sure. and that uh that he was very kind to people who were, i mean i was like the lowest of the low on the wrong lowest rung of the of the editor part, right? Because I was like on the web at a time when like being on the web was basically like a slur there, right? It's different. <laughs> it's very different now, you know? It's very different now, yeah. But at that time when the web was just starting, it was really sort of seen as like the second place to be and a place I that see. you wanted to work your way out of, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that John took the time to sort of see people who were like, what is this place that I'm in? Which is certainly how I felt, you know, cause I like, I barely worked in media, but also I was coming from like Grantland, you know, or it was just yeah. like hanging out in the office with Bill. You know? <laughs> oh my gosh. So yeah. And I like, like nobody would wear shoes in the office, you know, and we'd just like sit around talking about sports. Like I used to like chew tobacco at my desk at Grantland, you know, and then like, oh God, awesome. yeah, it's disgusting. <laughs> and then suddenly I'm like in this space where I'm like, oh my God, I've never been around people like this in my life before. Right. Like, I mean, it was, it was not quite, yeah, you know, I've been around rich people in college, but it was more like, I've just never been around people who are this well-educated and have thought this much about writing, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and publication and people who sort of, like I had never felt a fealty towards any type of institution before in my entire life. Right. Like it was like, I'm like, like, you know, um, and so you're in this intimidating place and you know, like a person, the person who has been there the longest, uh, yeah. is sort of talking to you like you're worthwhile and that you have, uh, that, but also not, you know, telling you like, look, you don't have to be so scared of this place because, um, you know, like at the core, what is it? You know, it's like a place where the things that you like to do are the things that are valued. And uh, your job in life is not to be scared of this institution and do everything <laughs> in your life because of it, right? Your job is to make yourself the best at reading and editing and writing that you can. Um, and yeah, yeah what, a, so what a loss. He's, uh, he was also extremely funny, 
And uh, very funny. I know. Like it's, I don't know. I felt very sad um, to hear about his passing, but, um, and, you know, really thoughts to his family, people who are close to him. um, And we just wanted to start the show with that, with that thought. I don't know what a, what a sad period of time between like, I don't know, Mike Davis and, uh, you know, being very ill and John and, uh, I don't know, it just seems just like feel a lot like of a lot of greats have been sick or passing recently. Yeah, yeah, I guess these things happen that way. But uh, anyway, um, that's a that's a sad way to start the show. But <laughs> Tammy and I both felt like we should talk about him because uh, yeah, in his way, he sort of touched our lives. And then the the alarming thing is that it was you know both of us didn't really inter- like. It's not like we had long relationships with him you know it's just like some people like they can uh really sort of influence people's lives in very short periods of time and you know i think that a lot of my uh confidence sort of going through this you know like the media landscape is because like a lot of the talks that we had right where i think there was another version of it where um i would have just rage quit and never worked in the industry <laughs> again. You know, I don't want to say yeah. that, <laughs> right? Because I was like, fuck all these people for life, Definitely. right? I will like not do the thing that I do pretty well that I like doing because I, because of these, you know, because I don't want to interact with these people ever. But, uh, you know, like I, I think uh, I was sort of walked away from that rank um, in, in, some, in some ways, you know, because of these conversations. So there we go. Um, yeah, thanks the, for uh, being able to do that. The, today we have a long conversation with uh, Paul Williams. Um, I'm very excited about it. Like, uh, this is somebody who has come up with a lot of the housing ideas that we see today and is behind a lot of the stuff that you see um, in publications about housing, a lot of really progressive ideas. And yet, I think in a way, as we'll talk about, Tammy is like a kind of pragmatic as well right like there's a yeah. air of pragmatism to about it so um yes this is our conversation with paul okay our guest today is paul williams he's the founder and executive director of of the uh, center for public enterprise which is a think tank with a focus on developing public sector enterprise to address market failures. In the past, he's worked with the Jane, Jane Family Institute. Paul, what is it? How do, how do I pronounce that? Jane Family Institute. Jane Family Institute, the Chicago Department of Housing and the Economic Opportunity Institute in Seattle. He holds an MA in economics from John Jay College at CUNY and a BA in mathematics from Evergreen State College. Are you, Paul, are you in New York right now? I am. Cool. Are you, are you a native New Yorker? I am not. Yeah. So, are you from Washington? I am not from there either. I actually, oh. <laughs> I grew, grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Thanks. And then have bounced around since then. So awesome. the reason the reason why we want to have Paul on the show is somebody's work whose work I've been following for quite a while now, and you know, somebody who as somebody who's interested in California housing politics, it's really somebody whose name comes up quite a bit. Ideas are really out there at this point, and um. You know, for me, at least, it's an interesting intersection between 
and what I think that we can just define very loosely as like the left, right? And how it can enter into politics, how it might interface with, you know, some more pragmatic type of concerns that people have while still having a vision that is, you know, pretty clear, right? And so um, all this gets lumped into this, you know, this sort of, I, 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 I don't think it's a problem with the term itself, but it's a problem with just, you know, it means different things to different people, right? And so the term that we're talking about today is social housing. So Paul, can you just give us your sense? Like when you say social housing, like what do you mean by that? Uh, it's a good, big question. You know, I think, I think that social housing, you're right, does mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And, and I think part of that is that, you know, there's a lot of different countries around the world that have programs that they call their social housing programs. And those programs operate in very different ways and have very different, um, you know, sizes and amounts of funding and, and who they serve and all these different things. But, but in general, I think the the kind of core things that define social housing is that social housing is protected from the market, meaning it's provided as a social good as opposed to just a market commodity. And there's a lot of different ways that countries and programs and cities and states have run programs that that kind of achieve that. Can you just give us like a one minute? synopsis of what the vision for social housing is in America? What does it look like? You know, for me, social housing in America would would look like a network of public institutions and public enterprises that build housing across the country, um, that build it to green energy standards, that build full electrification, um, and that build mixed income and universally so that, that this housing is seen as like a social good that like everyone can look at that and think this is for me, right? This is my housing and that is accessible to everyone from the poorest of the poor, um, to the market rate tenant, um, that everyone can live there. And you know, I think we have a long way to go uh, to get there, um, but but I do think it starts with building up these public enterprises at the state and local level to start to build a constituency to kind of re envision public housing. And so, like, re- really, at this at this moment, right, where people are starting to realize that there's this crisis, and you know, the way that you describe it in this article that you wrote. Um, that we're going to link to in the show notes is that like in the in the most simple way, right, um, that you play right at the top, you say, um, not only are we underbuilt generally, we are also exceedingly underbuilt where jobs are located. And not only are we overpriced, our incomes are, are also stagnant, right? Like that's sort of your broad assessment of the problem, which I don't, I don't know, Tammy, do you have any issues with that, with that sort of broad declaration? Seems like a totally fair diagnosis. (laughs) Right. So like how, 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 where does social housing enter into this, right? Like why there, everybody on, you know, in the housing sphere has their own, you know, kind of like spreadsheet and their own, their own PowerPoint slide deck about what their solution, <laughs> their solution will be yeah. in it. They are PowerPoints. I'll tell you what. <laughs> right. I have right, a like, feeling you have a lot of them. <laughs> it ranges from like, you know, somebody like Ed Glazer, for example, is somebody I interviewed for the times, right. Who's like this guy at Harvard. He's like sort of the, of the most like Mark. When people are like sort of 
use Yimby as a slur. I think they're mostly talking about like people <laughs> like him, where it's just like, hey, we can just build it taller. And also we shouldn't have rent control because that's, you know, that's going to inhibit the market in some sort of way. Um, and then you have people who are, you know, trying to blend the two. And then you have people who think, you know, that any type of market rate housing is evil, right? Like where, where, where do you sort of stand on this? Where does social housing sort of come into this, this diagnosed problem? I think that my big picture for social housing in the United States, you know, as I kind of lay out in, in that article is that uh, to get there, we have a lot of work that we need to do to establish and scale up, you know, social institutions, public institutions that are capable of delivering um, social housing, which is, you know, delivering social housing is a uh, complicated and difficult task in the sense that there are, there's complicated real estate transactions, there is complicated construction work, engineering, design, there's like a lot of work that takes years to go into like, one, you know, developing a new project from scratch and building it up from the ground, or even if you're acquiring old buildings and rehabilitating them, making them energy efficient. These are all things that take a long time. And, uh, you know, just on a project to project basis, but also kind of takes a long time to uh, get public institutions to the scale where they're able to actually have a big impact and be doing a lot of projects at once. That's not something that kind of happens overnight when you pass a bill. That's something that takes a decade uh, to kind of scale up. And so ideally, you know, you would have these kind of social institutions that are able to do a tremendous amount of the housing development. But today, you know, in June, 2020, July, 2022, we essentially do not have those institutions today, right? We have, we have a little bit of nonprofit housing that gets built that like, there are some people who would call it social housing. I wouldn't quite call it that. Um, and we have a little bit of kind of legacy public housing that's really been defunded, uh, you know, for the past several decades. Um, but we're, we don't have those institutions yet, and we have a long way to go to establish them and win them. And so I think that, you know, you kind of have this question of, in the meantime, is it okay to have other people build housing as we're scaling up these institutions? I think yes. I think the kind of mixed mode is the way that we transition to uh, a more social form of production. Yeah, let's let's like I don't know, and Tammy, please jump in whenever. Yeah. But like, let's go into a little bit of the history of how we got here, right? Because like, I think that one of the misconceptions that people have right now is that the United States has always been this way because it's always been a capitalist country, and that you know there's never been an appetite for any type of public housing, and you know that this is certainly not true, right? Like, one only needs to walk around New York City for two minutes and to see to see that at some point there was an appetite for this sort of stuff right or any major american city yeah you don't even have to do things like you know bring up like greenbelt maryland or something like that right which is and say like oh well at some point there was this utopian vision and it totally worked you just have to say like look at some point people regardless how you feel about how it turned out there were times when people were willing to build these things and now they're not Right. Um, yep. Yep. And so, like, you know, uh, how, how do we get to this point where it seems like the options are so limited? I think that's what frustrates a lot of people. Right. Or it's just like, well, we can't do anything, which, you know, I don't know, across the political spectrum right now seems to be 
one of the one of the frustrations, which is that there's no appetite to do anything. So how do we get to this point where you know the options are like, man, we gotta, um, we should do something, but it's going to take a long time. I think in your one of the one of the lines in your article that I really found true and to be quite clever was just that like any time this is going to take at least 20 years and anyone who says mm-hmm. anything different is, is a politician. It's like, yeah, that seems true. Right. So yeah. how, yeah. how do we get to this point? Yeah. Um, and so I'm actually like working on a, a, you know, post for my blog about this exact question of like the way I'm framing it is like, like there was a significant period of time, 1935 through 1975, really where public housing as a, as it was formulated at the beginning, you know, in 1935, as kind of a social safety net program, was very much baked into the political consensus of the United States, right? There was, there were the, every housing act up through 1983 expanded the total amount of funding and production of public housing that was happening. Housing act of 35, 37, 49, 65 created HUD, all of these things were expanding the total amount of public housing production. And then we kind of had a, the downfall of the Keynesian consensus and the uh, ushering in of the neoliberal consensus. And we, and so then you had 1980 through 2000, really, where Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton just kind of cleaved public housing out of the political consensus by like taking the money away creating the low-income housing tax credit program in 1986 that was this new public-private partnership that was going to replace the public production. And then finally in 1998 with Bill Clinton's Quality Housing Act, that's where the Faircloth Amendment came from, which capped the total number of, of public housing units that could exist and restructured the funding formula. So all these, you know, which is why so many public housing apartments today are in such disrepairs because... Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton took the money away. Um, and like maybe and so, 1978 voucherization is also part of that process. Yes. Right, 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 right. And that, you know, and, and, and that program scaled up um, somewhat slowly. And then as Section 9, which was the original, which is public housing, as the funding formula um, was reformed in the late 90s, there was, there's, and, and with, uh, the RAD program, res, uh, uh, residential, um, what does it stand for? Assistance demonstration. That program took units out of section nine and put them in section eight mm-hmm. uh, voucher programs. And so you've had this shift of like money to public housing going down and money to section eight um, going up. And that's mm-hmm. just become, that is the political consensus today, right? There's there's almost no constituency anywhere in the United States to do section nine housing again, other than the New York city housing authority who has, you know, like 40% of all the public housing in the country. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, so, how do we, how yeah. did that happen though? Right. Like, Cause it's like, now it's like some overwhelming percentage of, of assisted housing or public housing is through section eight, right. Through, through vouchers and that, this is not like a shift that took, like you said, the consensus was 40 years and it seems like all of this gets dismantled within the period of 15 years. Right. Like, um, and that now, yeah. uh, the same people who I would think in 19, 
1972, maybe even a little bit later, like 1978 or something like that, right? Who would have, and I'm talking about like people who are, you know, like just liberals or whatever, right? Or even people who aren't liberals, right? People who are in the middle would have been able to say, I don't know, we kind of need public housing because people need somewhere to live, you know, and that's fine. Like that's part of the social contract. And then suddenly it's not right. Like, is it all just Ronald Reagan? Like, you know, like, is there a way that like a president can have that much of an influence on public opinion? Because like, this is not, it's like the thing that's always struck me is that it's not something that is like ephemeral in a way, right? It's a foundational idea that people who are poor should be able to have a place to live that they can afford. And that, um, that it's not something that seems like it can be changed like uh, so quickly. And yet, you know, in, in some ways it, it, it is. Totally. I, I think some of it comes back to um, the scaling down of the American public sector's capacity to do infrastructure and development work. I mean, the 1930s was just an explosion of like, you know, from like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years before it was like, oh, we can build canals and like maybe like railroads to like 1935, like we're going to build Hoover Dam, you know, like it was, it was an explosion of, of development capacity from the public sector. And that really scaled down. I mean, you know, there was another shot in the arm to it in the 1950s with the interstate highway program, which that program had, uh, a lot of flaws and um, you know, but it, but it was in the sense of like, it was public sector capacity to do infrastructure development work. Um, and that really went away in the 1970s and eighties with the kind of neoliberal turn where um, the programs that replaced public sector development were public private partnerships, right? So instead of the public housing authorities building affordable housing, it was going to be nonprofit developers and for-profit developers who were going to apply for these tax credits in order to, to finance these, these projects. Right. And, and, you know, also with section eight uh, voucher housing, it's a similar thing, right? You have nonprofit developers and for-profit developers who build projects specifically to, to, you know, apply for voucher money. Um, Yeah. And if I could interject, I think there's also maybe a kind of racial history that we could read on top of this too. Oh, absolutely. Right. When public, which is a pattern in our welfare state, when there is more uptake among people who are not white, you know, for some of these public goods that then there's neglect of the system, then there's a decay, which leads to further disinvestment. Right. So there's sort of usual cycles of some of that. And I think at the same time, it seems like during some of those decades, there was an increasing valuation of this kind of American dream conception of home ownership and private you know, ownership so that being a renter was sort of also not a thing that you wanted to be. Yeah, and part, of, everybody. part of it is also, uh, you know, like something that's like termed as like, you know, like aesthetic or architectural or whatever, but actually isn't, yeah. right? Which is that all these sort of buildings that were built in, whatever Le Corbusier type of idea of like, uh, you know, large towers and little gardens that people walk around, you know, that they, that people thought, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that when they were built that people thought they were ugly. Right. But they become associated with that because they have black populations and a lot of them. And then you have, um, places like Cabrini green or whatever that become these yeah. 
or like true ego. Disaster. That whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And right. That, right. that then like the public sent- I I just remember like taking this when I was in college, I took this class on city planning and this, you know, this is where I just learned stuff like, Oh, it's like Corbusier, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was considered an ideal in some ways right it was this amazing yeah. class yeah i always like think about that when people you know like sometimes on twitter you'll see people like posting the the buildings in albany with the egg you know and i'm like that's a housing project yeah <laughs> like, that's the same idea as a housing project but the um but you know like i remember at that class which honestly is like one of the only the most helpful classes i've taken in my in my life but there was uh you know there was this conversation around this which was just like well the actual and this the professor was saying this and it was like the actual problem is that you know these buildings are bad it's not that the idea of public housing is bad so what we should what people should do is build smaller lower public housing units right so if they're only three stories high then people won't respond as badly to them it's like dude they're not responding to the height of the towers. They're responding to the people in the towers, you know? Yeah. And that's why they go, like, if like people and, don't want a decrepit three-story building next to them either that's getting no service from the city either. Yeah, go ahead. Right. I, I think what people dislike the most probably, I mean, one of the things people dislike a lot is that the buildings look bad in the sense that they are not maintained. And the reason yeah. that they are not maintained is because the money got taken away. Right. Yeah. Like there's, you know, I, I have, I know several people who, you know, work at New York city housing authority and like they're, they actually just passed this, this legislation at the state level that is going to allow them to, um, you know, there, there's this rad program where, uh, private managers take over, um, like property management and things like that. Um, and it, you know, they get, uh, funding to do repairs. They passed this legislation that's going to allow NYCHA to like continue to be the public manager and public operator and public owner of the properties and get them access to these, uh, this funding for repairs, which is great. Um, and you know, I mean that New York city housing authorities capital backlog for their portfolio is like $40 billion. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's wild and it's, and they passed this thing that's going to allow them to do a significant portion of that, um, you know, but it's going to take a decade to do the whole portfolio, which is actually relatively fast, I think, um, you know, but they're, they're going to do, they want to do things like, uh, like full electrification retrofits in any you know situation they can with like heat pumps and solar panels and like electric boilers and like the whole shebang and like new siding and like the buildings are going to look nice and like they have done a number of like repairs and upgrades where like the buildings look incredible and it it doesn't like people like it when there are things that look nice in their (laughs) neighborhood you know we should say that the legislation isn't without controversy right which i think gets into some of actually the distinctions you're making around private versus public what does it mean to have public or social housing versus having some private engagement um don't want to get too in the weeds because not everyone who listens to the show is in new york city but i do think that you know that nitra is like nitra is like the center of this because I, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. So go ahead, Tammy, what were you saying? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, I don't want to get too weedy, but I do, if maybe we could just do like a quick overview of it, which is that there's this preservation trust bill that was just passed into law in New York last month. 
And Paul, maybe you can explain sort of your view, some of the NYCHA tenants, the public housing tenants, and certain politicians who are really engaged in housing policy have opposed it, essentially saying that it represents a kind of privatization. Um, you've written, though, on your Substack that you don't think that's true, that actually it's just setting up a structure in which a public entity can receive certain kinds of money under HUD. So do you want to just tease that out? Like, why is that public? Yeah, totally. Um, so essentially the way like this RAD program works, which is kind of the the origin of all this. Well, actually, the origin of this is that Bill Clinton took the money away in 1998, right? And now public housing properties across the country have just lost their funding and gone into disrepair. This RAD program came about as a kind of answer to that. And the way it worked was public housing authorities would take their properties and, uh, you know, sell a ground lease to a private manager who would then be eligible for Section 8 vouchers, which they could use to finance repairs. Um, so, like, even in RAD, like, the actual land and, like, asset it still continues to be owned by the housing authority, but it's, like, on a 99-year ground lease or whatever. Um with the Preservation Trust Bill in New York, what happened is, is instead of giving ground leases to private companies, they created a new public entity at the state level called the Housing Preservation Trust that will be made up of NYCHA tenants and NYCHA staff. And that public entity is who gets the ground lease for the properties and who gets the money and then who's able to do the, all of those repairs. So it's like a, I mean, it's like a public alternative to this um, private partnership program. And I think that, I think that there's, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, skepticism about that program, I think comes from the fact that uh, NYCHA has not been a good landlord to a lot, to, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people for decades. And there's a significant amount of mistrust that anything that NYCHA is doing is is going to be a failure or it's a scheme or it's something bad. Um, um, and I think that, you know, you have you have that situation and you have like well-founded mistrust, right? Where people are like, why would I trust you to do this well and to like keep this thing public? Um and so that makes sense to me. And then also because you have, you know, the the city is going to be issuing bonds to to finance these these projects. And then, you know, people say, oh, bonds, that's money raised on the market. That means it's a private I scheme. It. But it's like bonds also, like that's how we pay for like schools, bridges, roads. Like that's how we pay for things that we build. With yeah, bonds. That, that's a, the distress. Do you remember like during the Trump administration, wasn't the head of NYCHA like one his... Uh, former secretary and she had this plan of she, like she was going to live in NYCHA housing for two weeks or something like do you remember this, this uh, <laughs> I don't know about New York but this happened in uh, Chicago um, yeah. Mayor Jane Byrne of Chicago lived in Cabrini Green for a few weeks um, <laughs> so maybe that's where she got the idea from that. maybe yeah. it was from that but yes that yeah. was yeah I think there's been you know People have tried to do that kind of thing from time to time. All right, so like I, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. The one other thing I, I was going to say about it is I think that it's important when thinking about this to 
grapple with the kind of real political economy out there, which is that like there there is not a constituency to fund Section Nine at the federal level. You know, there was maybe a shot that some money was going to come down with Build Back Better, but like yeah. that's now not happening, and like the outlook for the next six years in Congress, eight, 10 years, if you're pessimistic, you know, 30 years, who knows? Yeah, you know, I was like, going to say, like, eight like, years sounds great to me. <laughs> well, no, me too. I, I'm an the optimist. apocalypse on this show. <laughs> no, well, I'm an optimist because I have to be, but like getting that money from the federal government is like, that's not, that's not happening. Right, but, right. And, like, well, and, and, and I think it's, I, I think it's actually a good move to go back to how a lot of public housing authorities started, which was um, funding, getting funding themselves at the local and state level and creating institutions at the local and state level that can do some of the work on their own. And that's what I see this as. And I see it as an opportunity to build more institutions in New York state that can do more of this work. Yeah. I, I want like, I think we've laid this groundwork now, right. Which is basically that there's no appetite for, public housing at the federal level, right? And that even in places where there are localities where there is some appetite, like for example, I live here in the East Bay, right? And the issue here is that like things just don't get built and the money is there. And like for whatever reason, like they just can't actually, you know, and it's a variety of reasons, right? But like there are all these projects that just have never started, right? That are supposed to start and that yeah. there's this backlog. And some of it is people, you know, throwing their bodies in front of it, right? And some of it is just like, you know, mismanagement. And some of it is, you know, like the nimbyism that, that you know, sort of totally. marks all of California. Like there's a variety of factors in there. But that, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about with you is that, like, how do you sort of see this social housing proposal, right? Like, or the social housing as a way? Is it like a pragmatic way to try and do the best that we can given the circumstances? Because I think that that's where, like, you know, so we promised that we weren't going to talk about issues on Twitter, but I do think that, like, and we won't. But I will say that some of the objections that I've heard, right, from people who are very to the left, right, who are some of the people that we talk to, are that, you know, like, this is, you know, neoliberalism in disguise, right? Or that this is not really what we're talking about, right? Like, it's not really the thing that's going to happen. It's going to be corrupted almost immediately. And I don't know, like as a pragmatist myself in many ways, like I'm just like, well, I don't know. This is the reality of the situation, right? Um, how do you see it? Like, do you see it as being like, this? Is, these are the conditions and this is the best that we can do? Um, yeah, I think I think that my view is, you know, like I, like I said, public housing was really cleaved out of the political consensus. And that is like, that is the hand of cards that like we have been dealt as like people who believe in public housing in 2022, right? Like that's, that's what we face. And I think that it takes a significant amount of time and organizing and like making like the political ground to achieve like bigger and better institutions, more fertile, um, takes a lot of effort. And I think that one thing that contributes to that is establishing pragmatic institutions that can deliver something that changes people's views on what's possible and what the political consensus is, right? right? Like, I think I very much believe that if we have 
public institutions that can deliver high quality, mixed income, publicly developed projects, the political consensus of not just electeds, but of voters on like what public housing is can change and be a huge boost to efforts to expand those programs and uh, build them out into, I mean, honestly, build them out into what these international programs became after many years of doing the same thing, right? Like, I think, I think a way to think about it is like Vienna was not built in a day, right? A lot of people point to Vienna as like the, the social. Yes. And like, that did not happen in a day, right? There was like, you know, even before like the kind of the big things that happened in like 1919 and 1921 and 23, all of those big things, like there was like two decades of like organizing by, by uh, groups uh, building cooperative housing and getting the public sector to finance programs to help them cooperatively build housing. Like that was happening for a long time. Yeah, that's true. That's something I, I do think there's this misconception, especially around stuff like Red Vienna, which is just like, I don't know, they just build a really long building, a bunch of people live there, right? Like, right. It's, it's not really like well, it. Yeah, know. I mean, it they, does they, feel they, like that in some places in Asia, maybe. <laughs> well, and it, I mean, you know, <laughs> Singapore, Singapore's public housing program is absolutely wild. And, you know, yeah. they, they, it's like 85, 80, Eight percent of like the population right. lives in publicly developed housing, um, but even that started, and it was actually you know, in the late fifties when the uh, left wing uh, PAP was still in power. PAP is the is the party that developed the public housing program agenda and like started to put the pieces together, and then when the kind of center right party took over, they took that public housing agenda and those initial programs, which were seen as popular and like a good thing to do. And they took it and made it their own and they've been in, you know, power ever since. Um, But it it was the, it was the left wing party. Center right is very kind, but yes. In in 1963, they were like center right. Now they're like. Now they are authoritarians in a city state in which violence are excluded from this housing. But it is really good for certain residents of Singapore, for sure. Yeah, the story of Singapore is always like told as like, you know, well, if we had a benevolent, I think that's what Ed Glazer said. He's like, well, if we had a benevolent dictator in the United States, then we could build all these. (laughs) Right, I mean. Oh. And that's, it, you know, yeah, I mean, with, with Singapore, you know, I mean, there's uh, obviously politi- like no, nobody wants like Singapore's like political right. situation or, or government situation, but like, yeah. the, no, it's like, a good thing. Though, the in, a, in a, you know, just in a, a sense of like how that program is structured, like how they structure the financing and like construction management and how the program is run um, are actually innovative and really interesting and, and very economically powerful like tools for the country right like the the hdb is like a job engine for the construction sector and like materials sector right like they're able to like hdb is like the biggest buyer of steel there wow. right so like, imagine the steel, that here you know, yeah i mean like you know steel wood glass like all the everything that you need to like do construction and keep people employed yeah. hdb just like cranks that wheel Tammy, how do you feel about like Paul's like, you know, for lack of a better term here, it's just like a theory of change, right? That we have to basically show that this works. 
because the public sentiment is so against public housing at this point and that um if we can show that things work at some level that the that what we're facing here is like a you know like a war not just for getting people in houses but also to change the you know change hearts and minds to put it in the most like war like yeah. <laughs> I apologize but um you know that 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 you got to show that one thing works right that you you have to show and I I don't know like it's something that I've have quite a bit of sympathy towards you know just having you know being in a place that is one of the I don't know I don't know I would say the centerpiece of a lot of these debates at this point and seeing people so impassioned by it and what people say is basically just yeah. that like you know like they want to build all these towers on North Berkeley BART and the argument that people make is like oh it doesn't even matter if it's market rate housing it's going to turn into cabrini green right because that's what happens with towers happening it's like i don't know if a bunch of tech workers living in north berkeley that is so wild yeah it's crazy you know a brick tower so i feel like you should see these signs that they put up there the signs that they have up are like you know like neighbors not towers and i'm like (laughs) okay so tammy like what do you think do you think that that's do you think that's a path or are you more of like on the Thimby side of it for like you know, <laughs> we're just like we we get we can't we have to like basically be hardline until we get there tim what do you think well, i don't disagree with the general state sentiment and i think it's true that we have so much rehabilitation to do of all of our public sector goods especially housing i guess one question i have is how people will understand it as public housing you know because this is a thing that i feel like we always run up against when we have a public investment program and it works, people are like, oh, it's working because of other things, (laughs) some other reason, like the private part of it is working and the public sector actually never gets credit for it. And I do think we we see this sometimes in these mixed um, funded development projects, because there are, of course, like the mixed income housing, you know, units in very small quantity all over the United States. Right. And when those work and when they look nice, no one ever thinks like, oh, those are my public dollars at work. Yeah, so I like, don't see this kind of process of rehabilitation and reclamation happening. So how do you, how do we make that happen? Totally. Um, well, I mean, I think part of it starts with ha- establishing public institutions that are tasked with doing this work, right? Which is why I, I, I think that the bill in California, AB 2053, one thing I liked about it a lot is that it establishes a new agency, Right. That is like the California Housing Agency. And then, you know, it's important to do the kind of branding work, honestly, of like, this is a public building that we built, the California Housing Agency built. And it's also important to to, you know, build them well and to high standards and to have them serve. I mean, this so like something that I think uh, I find that a lot of people don't know about public housing history in the United States is that. The first few years of public housing, 1935, 36, 37, uh, before the 1937 Housing Act, the projects that were built and and the, the union organizers who were you know leading the campaign to establish these programs, they were all mixed income, right? It was like a wide swath of people were able to apply. You had low income people, you know, they were just low rent apartments and you had low income people applying to live there because they're like, it's awesome, high quality apartment for low rent. You had moderate income people applying to live there because they're like, this is awesome, low rent apartment that's high quality. And it was the real estate industry who said, oh, no, 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 you cannot do that because now you are competing with me for 
tenants that I want to live in my buildings. And so it was the real estate industry who said, no, for your public housing program, you're only allowed to serve this little narrow band of incomes. And that's part of what sets up this kind of situation where then you have, okay, who is allowed to live in these buildings? The poorest people. And who does that end up being? The poorest, blackest people in the biggest cities in America. Mm-hmm. And that contributes to the, I mean, that politically stigmatization, is like stigmatization and like easy to defund because it's totally. like, you just get Ronald Reagan going out there saying welfare queen and you just can build this whole stigmatization and characterization and, uh, and, you know, you look at, do you, do you you understand then that turn to be the reason why a lot of union organizers decided to go into private co-op development to house their own people? Because there was around the same time as the, the public housing is taking off a bunch of these kind of similar towers all over the, well, especially in New York, but in other parts of the country too, where like unions would just build their own housing for their members. And those were very mixed income. I mean, all union members, but of different. Totally. Incomes. And that, that was that this was a whole trend across Europe and in the United States, like 1910 through the kind of uh, up through World War Two um, and in some places after. But, but actually, a lot of the projects that got funded um, or some of the projects that got funded by the housing division of the Public Works Administration during the New Deal were. Uh, union co-op projects like there were a number mm, of these union yeah. co-op projects in in Philadelphia for example um, and it was there you had a similar argument from uh, from landlords at the time uh, in Philadelphia saying no don't build these don't build these new buildings uh, the vacancy rate like if you build these new buildings you'll be uh, providing for people that I want to live in my buildings like they're saying <laughs> yeah. like don't add supply. That's bad for me. Right. And they, they were saying that to like the, the union co-op people and, you know, 35. Um, Damn. Yeah. It's, it's wild. There's also this long history of that in, in Vienna, like a lot of these co-op projects that I was talking about there in the, the decades uh, before red Vienna um, were, you know, social democratic unionist um, co-op projects that were, being built so yeah um i want to talk a bit about this california social housing bill right that i think you had some you had some uh you had some authorship in is that right or you did some work on i uh i worked on the bill yeah i helped with um you know talking to uh talking to people explaining how it would work and you know all these kind of things all right so like two things the first is like you know we already talked about how it established the California Housing Authority, right, which is an independent state body, the mission of which would be to produce and acquire social housing developments for the purpose of eliminating the gap between housing production and regional housing needs assessment targets, right? Um, and that all social housing developed by the authority would be owned by the authority. Is that That's all correct, right? All and public that, ownership, all publicly developed, all publicly owned. And that... Um, you know, I, the reason why I was interested in this and, you know, I followed it quite closely was because it seemed like this was really uh, at a big scale, the sort of, you know, one of the real intersections between these ideas that people have. Right. And then trying to find sympathetic politicians, which, you know, you did find with Alex Lee. Right. Who I think was the sponsor of the bill, who, um, who's in the state assembly and then trying to get this thing through. 
right? And we've seen this for a while with like the Yimby movement, right? For example, right? Like they have Scott Wiener, for example, Scott Wiener can get a few things through and, you know, increasingly more to the Yimby credit, which is that, you know, they've had a lot of legislative victories within this state. Um, can you just talk us through that process a little bit? Because I think that, you know, that step is, is new, right? It is interesting where it's like, okay, we have these ideas about what has happened to public housing. We have this idea of what has happened and now we're going to try and enact them into policy. Like what was that process like for you? Yeah. You know, if I can tell a little bit of a backstory. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yep. First, you know, so, um, something that is, has been really helpful for me in my work as, as trying to, you know, not just spread the ideas about public developers and public housing, but to, uh, convince people who are decision makers that this is, you know, there's something viable here is that there, there is this one public housing authority just outside of Washington, DC in Montgomery County, Maryland, um, that has been running its own self-financed mixed income, publicly developed, publicly owned housing program for the past three or four years. And they kind of came up with this idea for this public financing mechanism to help them do these projects. And, you know, I, I think, you know, people generally think that public housing authorities aren't able to build new housing because the fair cloth limit caps how many units they're allowed to build. But the, the unit that that limit doesn't cap how many total units they can have that that caps how many section nine units HUD will pay you for. Right, right, which is like tip most public housing authorities are like, Oh, yeah, that's, you know, why would I build anything if I'm not going to get the check from HUD every month? They came up with a self-financing program where they got a little bit of budget from their county to run this program. And so they're building like a thousand units like now, you know, of like mixed income um, apartments, publicly developed, publicly owned. And no fair cloth limit, Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, nobody can do anything about it because it's like their local program. Um and I think that it's extremely helpful to have a like real viable program that's in place that someone is doing to point to and say like, no, this is not like, this is not like pie in the sky. This is like a program that these people are running and like, we could do that too. And I, and I think then, you know, the, like the criticism I think of, of this particular bill has been that like, it doesn't have enough funding to provide even more uh, subsidies to make the rents even lower for, you know, more in need populations. And it's like, yeah. yes, and you, you can add all that. You can add the money that you need. I, I think, you know, there's kind of a, I mean, it'd be great to get a bill that has like both establishes this agency that can like run these programs by itself and like gives it a giant budget. Um, that would be fantastic. And I, you know, I, I think, I think there's probably going to be attempts to do uh, that in the future, the bill didn't succeed this session. Um, is the Montgomery but, County program so far capturing people who are living in poverty and depoverting? Yeah, they have uh, a lot of the units that they're building are at uh, like very low income levels, like 50% AMI. They have some projects where they're doing like between 30% AMI, which is uh, extremely low income and up to 80% AMI, which is, you know, HUD low income. 
So, I mean, they're, they're capturing across the board and they have, you know, market rate and moderate income units too, which is how they're able to do it without using any HUD dollars. Um, we should say it's just area median income, right? Is the yes, yes, yes. May yes. AMI, right. So 100% AMI is like the middle of the road income in any given region. And so all these percentages below refer to, uh, you know, different... Uh, you know, relative poverty, as it were. Well, what were the, like, what were some of the objections that you heard, right? In terms of if the idea is to start this, and I, I think I have this correct, which is that like, you know, we start this California housing authority, right? And we do a few things and they work and that, um, and that people see that this, this model is working, right? And that they start to change their mind. And in California, part of my personal theory is that like some of this stuff is going to be accelerated by the homelessness crisis, right? That like, I, I mean, I hear just from reporting people across the political spectrum considering public housing options because like they can't, you know, I mean, you can attribute to whatever they want, but like whether out of, you know, malice or out of like, you know, out of compassion, probably a mixture of both for everybody, right? Like that there is like, okay, we have to do something, you know, like, totally. yeah, why I mean, not? Why don't we just build a big tower and put them all in and, you know, maybe the government can own it. It's like, yeah, you know, like there's a, I mean, yeah. Um, like, but like, what was, what was some of the resistance that you heard from about this, right? Because it did die in assembly, we should say, right? Like it didn't pass through assembly and that, um, that, that it passed assembly, right. but it didn't pass Senate. Oh, it didn't pass Senate. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Um, that it didn't get through um, the political process. But like, what, what were some of the objections to this, right? Especially in a state that is like where I think almost where housing is by far the number one political um, yeah. priority and homelessness is a close second and they're the same thing, you know? Yes. So basically, yes. yeah, yeah. It's like the only political... Yes. It's like the only political. I think the too. whole West Coast is like. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. 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 Um, well, you know, I think the bill would have had trouble getting through the, the Senate floor or if it had passed the Senate floor with with getting a signature from the governor, honestly. Right. Um, but one of the things in the in the committee that it did die in uh, that was found to be objectionable by members of that committee was that the the public housing agency would have the ability to kind of uh, override some aspects of local planning rules, right? Like it could go and buy a piece of land in Palo Alto and say like, sorry, I'm not, you know, if it's zoned for a single family or, you know, whatever, like it could build yeah. a little bit taller right, right, right. in, in a, you know, affluent neighborhood if it wanted to. And of course, uh, <laughs> one of the organizations that came out in strong opposition to the bill was like, you know, all of these uh, associations of governments, right? Like the, you know, all the like Southern California towns were like, oh, no, 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 you, we can't yeah. have a bill where you can override right. any of my rules. Um, and some members of the committee were very, um, you know, receptive to that line of thinking. And, you know, I think there's other stuff this that that. I think some people were skeptical of creating a new agency at the state level, because I think there's generally a lot of fear about that. There's like agency fatigue. There's like, Oh my God, another housing agency. Oh, do we need this? Yeah. Do we need this new thing? The public sector, we do too much. And I think honestly that speaks to this, this kind of question of like, like 
we need like these huge budget asks to do a lot of the programs that we need for how, I mean, we need to spend so much money. And I think that, uh, the, the path of least resistance for local and state governments on that is to just continue to fund the public private partnerships that grew out of the defunding of public housing, right? Like if we do nothing, if we don't create these public agencies that can be successful and run these programs well, then the default position of any government is going to be like, great, well, I'll just give more money to low income housing tax credit projects. And like, that's the way that I'll solve the problem. Um, And so I think, you know, partly also to like build the momentum to get funding for these programs um, and to, to shift that kind of river away from like the public private partnership toward public programs, you have to dig that ditch a little bit and start to build that public program. Why do you always have to make a new agency? Well, you don't necessarily, I mean, you know, in Montgomery County, they didn't make a new agency. They just had a public housing authority and they just had a team there that was like, yeah. I mean, it really was kind of, I mean, I talked to them pretty frequently, like just Mm -hmm. kind of a light bulb moment of like, oh, wait, like if we just had this revolving loan fund for construction, you know, just kind of like technical real estate stuff, like we could actually just do a bunch of public development. But is the idea of doing that in California as a statewide bill, or I know there's other things like happening in Rhode Island and Seattle, is it because there's no one we can trust inside the agencies to actually think about this? In in Rhode Island, actually, and so Rhode Island's, what happened there is really great. So there's a group called Reclaim Rhode Island, which is Mm -hmm. like this kind of progressive organizing group there. And I worked pretty closely with them over the past few months as they kind of pushed for this public developer pilot to be included in the state budget this year. They succeeded and they got $10 million from, you know, rescue American rescue plan, like state and local relief money included for a a mixed income public housing pilot. And it's going to be administered by existing agencies, right? They're going to have public housing authorities in the state, um, you know, do a couple of these projects as a pilot. And I think that's great, right? Because these, these agencies do have some capacity potentially to do, to do these projects. And, um, you know, in a lot of cases it makes sense, you know, especially if you're doing like a little pilot, like use some existing agency infrastructure to do that. Yeah. I'd say the benefit though of this particular one, just as a branding type of thing, almost. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, there's such a- desperation that any big idea will sound cool to people, you know? And so right, like, right, I don't right, know. Right. I think like, I was like, Oh, California housing. It makes sense. Cool. No, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I like, well, that's the thing. I, I think there's a number of different paths right. in different places that can like yeah. move the ball and start to shift the water away from the public private partnership and toward the, the public program. And it's like, you can either pass like a big political bill that's like, this has every bell and whistle, this has everything to like, you can kind of like talk to people in a housing finance agency and be like, hey, what if you did this? And like, they can spin up a little program. Yeah. I think though the exhaustion, like on the FIMBY side that Jay said, the public housing in my backyard, like the public housing only people, if I would rehearse their arguments though, I think it's, which I am pretty sensitive to just living here in New York City is that every time we have a mixed income development, even if there is public money involved or whatever, whatever thing that we have that has been the closest to trying to do something in the way of social housing you're describing, it has never reached poor people. 
like people that we are talking about as truly poor. I mean, the AMI here is like $120,000. So if you have 50% of that, that's $60,000. And I'm talking about people who are making $30,000 for a family of five, right? So what do you do with that population? It also doesn't necessarily align or with or respond to the question of homelessness that Jay raised. Like, it's not like you actually are placing the very, very poorest community members in our communities in these buildings. So, you know, I think there's, there's like a disconnect and I, I totally understand your argument and I, which I'm hearing is a kind of like incrementalism, right. Um, but I think people are so fed up and they feel like we need this like radical solution. Uh, but of course we don't really have a path to get there. Totally. I mean, you know, the, like when you get to incomes at that level, like the, you know, I, I think, I think it helps to, um, look at like how honestly like how projects are paid for generally in the United States, which is that like you take out a big loan, you take out a really big loan. And that's the way HDB does it in Singapore. That's the way it is in Finland. That's the way it is in Vienna. Like you take out a big loan. Um, And in places like Finland and, and Vienna, a lot of what allows, I mean, a lot of like, very low income people live in in the social housing there. And a lot of what allows that to happen, particularly in Finland, is that everyone you have, there's like a universal housing benefit that like everyone receives just as like, you know, several hundred euros equivalent. That'd be so nice. Every month. And, and that allows, that allows the housing agency to just charge the kind of at cost rent of like, I took out a loan. I have to pay, they take out their loan from a public bank, by the way but they have to pay the public bank back on, on their mortgage payment every month. And it allows them to just kind of charge what the cost is to them. They're not making a profit. They're just like, just give me the amount to like pay the operations and maintenance staff and like pay my loan back. But everyone has these kind of universal benefits that allow them to pay what that rate is. And so it's, it, the system works in that way. And so that, and so when you have people who, when you get down to incomes that are, super low like the way that you get rents at that level that are affordable is you pay for them with cash money right okay and and i think i mean that's that's the way this that issue has kind of been solved everywhere around the world mm-hmm. that that has social housing programs i like and it. so you know there's you know in new york there was uh there was a bill the past couple of years actually called the housing access voucher program which would be like federal voucher program but run by new york state specifically for homeless folks that's something that i think a lot of people are looking to as like okay could we have that funding go to a public developer in new york state right Uh could could a public developer access that money to provide uh extremely low income units right yeah because right if if you wanted if you want to do if you want to do a broader mix like that and get deeper subsidy, you pay for it with money. And so that's why right. the budget, the budget asks are so important to this too. Well, I, um, all right. So yeah, there's two more things that I wanted to do. Well, the first is just like, um, you know, like just to wrap up here a bit, which is just like, well, you know, where are we right now in terms of this? Right. It's, that's one thing that's hard for me to figure out sometimes because like I see a, you know, just from a broad sense that there is still this hostility towards any type of thing that could be public housing. 
And I do think it's clever to call it social housing because then people don't have the negative association well, with it, which is very real because like yeah. the totally. work that, that happened starting in the eighties is like around like, you know, making Cabrini green seem like it was like the scariest place on earth, making it seem like these towers are places where people just, you know, go to have, you know, like whatever, like go to smoke crack and kill each other. Right. Like uh, welfare Queens, all this stuff was very effective. Right. And that, we haven't really recovered from it because there has never been a counter narrative offered by anybody, include, especially uh, including the people who should be on the side of some of this stuff. Right. Like, I mean, like some of the people most hostile towards pu public housing are Democrats. Right. Um, yep. as, like you said, Bill Clinton did a lot of this, but oh, um, yeah. that was bipartisan legislation. <laughs> right. Right. The one thing people housing. agree upon. Right. Um, but the thing I can't get is, right, and this part of it is the aphasia of sort of living online and sort of seeing these debates happening online, which is that it does seem like there's a massive amount of energy around finding some sort of solution, right? That, And I don't think that the, I don't think that the accusation that some people make that anybody who's looking on this type of path or anything even slightly to the right of this is like, just like working for a developer or something like that, right? Like, I think that that stuff is silly. But right. um, what I don't quite get is that, you know, you do have, like, the people point to different bills that are being passed, right? And they'll say, like, we're making progress, we're making progress, right? We're getting towards a point. Now, I don't want to discount any of that work, right? Because I do think that there has been some process, uh, progress. But where do you think we are, right? Like, where, where are we in terms of getting a lot of this stuff done? Because, like, I think that in terms of convincing the media, which is, somewhat of an important thing, given that the media was a lot of people who demonized public housing in the first place. I think there's a lot of progress there, right? Um, now, in yeah. terms of like convincing some politicians in certain states, I think there's some progress there. But like, where are we, where are we realistically right now in terms of that outside of like the media and outside of, you know, like small localities? You know, I, I talk to organizers, politicians, bureaucrats in different states and cities all over pretty regularly. And something that I've found is that people who run public programs for housing today, like the, them themselves and like the elected people that they serve at the behest of are like, we need more stuff. Like what we need something more, we need to expand the pie and like programs like, um, I was just gonna say public developers, which I think is, I think there's like several terms that like are not public housing that like describe similar kinds of activities and like public developer and like social housing are like within that basket of, you know, different descriptions. But anyway, social housing, public developers, things like this are um, uh, new programs. And like, I've been pretty amazed at the kind of response from like program administrators at like housing departments who are like, oh wow like you're right like we could do that that's crazy why didn't we think of that um you know we could spin up these like local programs that we finance ourselves and like expand our total subsidized housing production and i think that that's really important because you know if you just try and do a bill in the legislature with like any, like we just kind of saw what happened in california right. right when you just had like one legislator who was like championing something and like did a tremendous amount of work to like carry it forward, but like, and got further than anyone expected, but like ultimately ran up against the wall. I think that's really important. And I, and I think that like, there's a tremendous appetite from like, 
progressive groups and organizers for public goods and like investment and like creating these new programs. And I think all of those things combined um, actually put us on a pretty good path. Like I said earlier, I think that the path really is like, like these kind of programs are going to have to be built out at local and state levels until the federal conditions change. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that much like what happened in the new deal where like early in the depression, there were a lot of local and state programs doing wild stuff that were built out. You know, the New York power authority in New York was, was FDR when he was, when he was governor. Um, that created this constituency at the federal level for like, Hey feds, like look at all these programs that all these States are running. Like now do this stuff really big at the federal level. I think that's kind of a direction I think we would need to go to like build this out at a, at a bigger scale. Right. Yeah. That makes sense to me. I don't know. I feel heartened by that. What what about you, Tim? Let's do it. (laughs) That's we just I, need 30 years, doing. right? I'm not as doomer <laughs> about this as I'm. We'll I still be alive in 30 stuff. years. No, because I, I do yeah. think, like, I don't know, maybe it is just here. It's just like the sense of emergency is going to yield something. Like, you know, like people can't, yeah. like, I'm sorry, but like, you can't, like, this is not tenable, right? Like, totally. everybody who comes here, even people who have lived here before, they're always shocked, you know, or you drive by, like, a, you know, an entire block that's, uh, that has RVs parked in every conceivable spot. And they're like, well, in this family's living there. It's like not, it's not, it's a different reaction than, you know, the reaction to like, you know, people are like, oh, there are all these zombies in the tenderloin, which is also a real thing. You know, like that's also a real reaction people have. But like, um, you know, like I think that there's like a real, you know, I don't know. I think that a lot can happen when the population is disgusted. Right. Um, uh, okay. Well, Paul, thanks for coming on. And, um, Totally. Uh, yeah, thank you, this was really helpful. And um, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, we do this every week. And uh, if you want to support the show for five dollars a month, please contact us at goodbye.fedstack.com. And you'll get access to our Discord server. We will see you next week.